Welcome to the Risk and Repeat podcast, episode number 130. I'm Rob Wright, Editorial Director of Search Security. This week, we are talking with Chet Wisniewski. He is the Principal Research Scientist at Sophos, and he's one of the authors of the 2019 Sophos Labs Threat Report. This report features data compiled by Sophos Labs researchers about current trends and shifts in the threat landscape and the shifts and trends that are expected to impact enterprise security in 2019. I'm not going to ruin the findings now. I'm going to let Chet talk about them in just a minute, but I'll set the stage by saying the report focuses on three primary trends, two of which we will discuss on the podcast, targeted cyber attacks, specifically ransomware, and living off the land techniques, and how these trends indicate positive developments in the overall war on cybercrime. That's right, positive developments. So maybe it's time to ask, are we actually winning the war on cybercrime. Here's the conversation with Chet Wisniewski of Sophos. My role as principal research scientist uh, defined a little more clearly is working in the CTO's office doing kind of research on the larger picture things that are affecting security uh, in, in the you know, in the business landscape, right? So when you think about the folks that do the work in our labs, many of them are very focused on very particular jobs, right? They're looking at particular malware families or particular kinds of threats and, you know, how those impact our customers and, you know, how they're going to feed our products information. Whereas my role and my team uh, is to step a little further back from that to see that, that larger picture of all the things that we're seeing and how that's, you know, impacting risk management for businesses and then, using that information to then uh, uh, both, uh, you know, conducting research on that. And uh, so my, myself and my, my colleague John and some others do our own original research, but we also are sort of uh, often a mouthpiece for SOFOS in the labs with uh, journalists, with the public at uh, conferences and events, trying to help people use the information that we gather uh, in the lab to actually affect their policy decisions on, you know, how to defend their networks and how things are moving and changing. And so that's leading directly into kind of the uh, approach we took to the report this year as well, because rather than give you a list of here's the top 25 malware families that are impacting things, which on a good day doesn't tell you a heck of a lot, um, we kind of took the approach of what do we really see that's changing sort of underneath people's feet, right? How is the landscape changing in ways they may not be expecting? And how can we try to give people a heads up on what we have started to see gaining traction so that they can be better prepared for those things to ramp up and potentially change how they defend their networks next year? So, you know, we we kind of focused on three areas in the report and didn't uh, didn't try to spread it too thin and just go with all statistics, but focus on things that we think are really different and new in, in 2018 or areas where we felt maybe that uh, criminals were dipping their toe in the water, preparing themselves uh, to, to take a deeper dive next year and, and target more victims with the new techniques. I'll just say for from my perspective that I appreciate the approach that you guys took because if I see another report that is you know, tries to be everything to everyone and sort of spreads things too thin and doesn't really drill down into any one topic, but just sort of presents the 35,000 foot view, I'm going to scream. <laughs> so. Well, this is the thing. I think a lot of us are getting tired of, um, you know, well, I mean, all of us like stats. So everybody always likes to publish lots of stats. But the truth is, stats don't really make policy when you're trying to decide what to do to protect yourself. They're just interesting because we're nerds and we like stats and numbers. 
and trying to cover everything, as you say, you either end up with a 300-page report and, you know, 70% of it stuff you already knew or already read or already heard over the course of the year and doesn't feel any different, right? And, um, you know, we have a new author this year that's working with us in the lab, Andrew, and, uh, you know, he and I and uh, my colleague John and a few others all had some input on, like, let's change this, you know, into trying to be something that people could actually take away and basically ask themselves, are we ready? Like, are we ready for these changes if this is what's happening and, and what are we going to do to implement changes in our, um, in our approach to everything from patching to endpoint security, whatever it might be, in order to, to, to make sure that we're ready to defend and protect against these new attack methods. So I, I wanted to ask you on that point, the, the thing that really stood out to me in this report was, was the sort of shift towards cyber criminals using, li living off the land, using available IT tools, legitimate uh, tools to do what they need to do. And the report's interesting because it kind of suggests that, well, this is a good thing because it's sort of weeding out the people that are just using the stuff that they can pull off the web and maybe the unskilled attackers and so on and so forth. But what doesn't this sort of present a danger? Because those tools are harder to, to detect, right? Yeah, I don't think we meant to necessarily give the impression that it was a, a good thing, but it, it's a shift in that the commodity stuff that random people are grabbing off the Internet, they're still out there doing that, but we're pretty darn good at blocking and detecting that stuff. So it's not as big a concern. I mean, most enterprises have gotten a lot better at patching windows. I mean, I know uh, as we're talking, it's Patch Tuesday, and, you know, that's a big thing. And, um, you know, most companies, of course, won't have rolled out Microsoft fixes this afternoon. But on the other hand, uh, you know, within 30 days of now, a far greater percentage of them will have them before. And a lot of those old exploits that, you know, um, people were using to attack Word or, you know, uh, Microsoft Edge or, you know, other components in Windows, those things just don't last or have as much success as they used to. And this living off the land thing, does mean it's a smaller number of more skilled attackers. So to me, it's it's maybe even scarier, you know, in a certain way. I mean, it means there's less volume and less noise to deal with from the the unskilled or lower tier um, wannabe hacker types. But it also means that the people we're facing now are much more like uh, penetration testers, right? They're basically criminal penetration testers. They're more persistent. They're more capable, and as you say, that you know, or as we point out in the report, you know, we're, they're they're using more of your tools, which makes it a lot harder to um, to just block those things, right? I mean, most organizations are not just going to blanket block PowerShell or blanket block uh, um, even things like you know Microsoft SysInternals tools. So, you know, lots of administrators use things like PS Exec in their in their everyday work environments. What it might change, um, or one of the ways that people can adopt to the living off the land a little better, though, is starting to detect the use of these tools and maybe being a little bit more regimented or um, organized in how they use them themselves so that they can detect the anomalous use of them. And, uh, you know, in bigger organizations, that often is things like change control. You know, those tools shouldn't be being used randomly throughout the day. They should be being used during maintenance windows, and our maintenance window for, you know, windows patches is the third Saturday of the month from 8 p.m. to midnight, and so you know when to expect those tools to be in use, and so by detecting those tools use on your network, if it's outside of those times, 
they shouldn't be happening, or the IT team should have notified the security team or the SOC that those tools are going to be in use during uh, an emergency out-of-band you know, maintenance window because they filed some paperwork. And I know that sounds like a whole lot of bureaucracy, but it, unfortunately in bigger organizations, that's usually how this plays out. The other bit that's interesting is often um, maybe a combination of them being used in different ways. Uh, you know, we, we also talked about how sometimes you'll see a you know, PowerShell script call, a Windows scripting host thing, another thing. And that's another way to detect, um, potentially detect that malicious behavior. That's not something that real administrative use of those tools looks like. So we're getting back to, you know, just like we are with a lot of malware detection, starting to look at the behavior a lot more than necessarily just the bits and bytes themselves because it's pretty easy to dress up the bits and bytes to look like something innocent. But the behavior in the end usually is very different than a true administrative activity. Do most organizations do that kind of sort of uh, regimented control of those tools as you suggested, or is that something that's sort of more rare and, and a, a newer practice? I think it's pretty rare, but it's an easy thing to adapt into the existing change. So change control processes, in my experience, uh, obviously are usually just for larger organizations, say more than 1,000 employees. Um, and But within those organizations, they've already got a process, right? And uh, you know, we're coming up into the holiday season, right? Any retailer has a process that, you know, no changes are to be made. There's a change freeze. And then after that change freeze, here's the date and time we're going to make changes or allow changes to our systems. So a lot of that exists mostly focused on software and patching, right? It's we're not going to upgrade server X and Y because they're part of our e-commerce platform. And so it can be easily extended into other use of tools. And, and there's also some, some legal motivations for implementing more of these processes uh, beyond patching as well. When you, if your organization, for example, is uh, required to be GDPR compliant, well, it's not a good idea to have random IT people around the network running sniffers, for example, whether that's TCP dump or Wireshark. Those things are kind of illegal for your people to do unless they have a valid reason to do them because they could be snooping on private information of other employees. So there should be a change request form. There should be approval from the IT manager or IT director saying, yes, you're approved to do this for this specific reason. And that also means you have a chance to log it and notify your SOC that those potentially malicious tools are going to be in use on your network and that it's an authorized activity. So it does give you a little bit of protection from legal. But, I mean, your question is, you know, how many people are doing it? I don't think hardly any are doing it necessarily the way I'm suggesting it at the moment. I think most of that process exists in the software change control world. And I'm, I guess I'm recommending that we may want to extend that into use of some of these administrative tools that we know are dual-use tools that may be used maliciously. So a, a question, you, you've mentioned patching a couple times. The part in this report about Eternal Blue, I don't want to say it was surprising because, I, I mean, you see Eternal Blue in a lot of things. You, you've see, you see a lot of reports, a lot of activity around it. I guess it is a little surprising to me, though, that uh, – that this exploit is still, I guess, so successful considering that SMB v1, uh, I mean, there's a patch out there for it, and it doesn't seem like that's something that organizations need to use. So why are why are so many places still susceptible to Eternal Blue and, and to this lateral movement that you guys have seen? I have two theories. I mean, obviously we have no hard proof to say why, because it's hard to say why things don't get done when it seems like they're not hard, because often they're much harder than they appear. Um, but, you know, the, the two reasons that come to mind um, for me are, 
one, from a criminal's perspective, there's no reason not to throw this at the wall. It may not work, but if I'm on your network and I've already compromised one of your assets, if all I have to do is run a script and I can compromise 100 of your assets, I may as well run the script. If you've patched, it does nothing. If you've patched 98 of them, I get two of them. But the cost is zero because the exploit code is out there. Uh, it's a matter of copying and pasting it to do your will with it. So I think a lot of the detections we see may not, in fact, be successful. We're just seeing it being tried. We're, you know, we're detecting the eternal blue activity, and we go, hey, you know, blocked it. When, if we hadn't blocked it, it might turn out that computer was never uh, susceptible to begin with. That's one of the, the challenges you'll see anytime you're looking at firewall detections or antivirus detections, that kind of thing, is we're detecting the activity as we're seeing it on the wire, meaning somebody's trying to do it, and then we're stopping it before it's successful because, of course, that's what our job is, is to block things that we know could be bad for you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that would have worked. Now, we have seen it work in some of our clients' environments, and that's why it's in the report, so it's not like it's entirely unsuccessful. And my theory on that, which um, I, 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 I don't know how long, much longer we need to say the same thing as um, um, you know, security research people, but patching just your externally facing systems is not going to be good enough. And that's what I think is happening here. I think a lot of companies are, are auditing everything externally facing much more carefully. We're not seeing eternal blue spreading across the Internet much of anything anymore. We're seeing lots of attempts again, but not a lot of success. But once you're inside of a network, a lot of times um, we're back to this uptime, the server can't be taken down, don't worry, it's behind the firewall. We can, we can just get away with not patching it. And especially in really mission-critical systems around ERP and logistics and e-commerce and all that kind of stuff, people don't want to touch those systems. There's such a high risk. I mean, gosh, do we patch the Oracle server? Well, there were 135 vulnerabilities updated in the last quarterly update for patch from Oracle. That sounds like a high-risk activity. I think I'll just wait. That server's on the inside, and because it's on the inside, I'm not going to apply those Windows updates, or I may not be applying those Oracle updates. And I'm not trying to pick on Oracle in this case. Um, just using it as an example because they have a tendency to ship these giant patches, right? And that's very intimidating to, uh, you know, critical key systems within a lot of IT environments. And I think there's still a lot of admins that are running six months to a year or more behind on patching on internal systems on the misguided belief that, you know, if they're not facing the Internet, it won't be a problem. And a lot of those systems, in my experience, it's more than years. So and, and it's you know and, it, and that's not as common in Windows as it is, as it is in Linux. Um, uh, you know, in, in Linux, it's often common to see servers go unpatched for incredibly long periods of time. Hmm. Um, whereas obviously in Windows, people understand the risk is higher. But I think there's still a lot of complacency of um, inside of network being way more vulnerable uh, to attack than outside. And until Eternal Blue, we hadn't seen a wormable exploit for Windows since Configure, right? So Conficker was 10 years old two weeks ago. <laughs> mm. um, so for 10 years, we had gotten away with not worrying about patching inside because things weren't wormable. Nothing was worming around our network, so we got, lazy with, we got lazy with network segmentation, which is not something we really touched on in there, but that's another reason we see Eternal Blues working so well. People stopped segmenting their networks as much as they used to, and the main reason we used to segment things in the late 90s and early 2000s was there was a new worm every day, right? It was SQL Slammer and Code Red and Melissa and this and that and the other thing. And we started realizing, like, oh, we've got to isolate the servers from the endpoints and we've got to you know, maybe isolate the finance department from the engineering department, all this stuff. And then we stopped having worms. And so everybody, you know, started getting, I don't want to say lazy, maybe complacent. Um, 
and not doing the segmentation as much as they used to and not being as aggressive at internal patching versus external patching because nothing happened. And then, of course, now something happened. What does that do? I, you know, the, a big part of the report is obviously about targeted attacks and I guess targeted ransomware. Do, do the attackers know, do they scout different industries, different verticals, different companies and say, oh, they're probably running Linux, they're probably, does that make, and does that make them easy targets to know that they probably didn't patch a lot of their internal systems or even some of their uh, external web-facing systems, and and then they just know that those are the, the ones to go after with ransomware or whatever? We're not seeing that quite to that degree yet. It's early days, so we'll see how it evolves, and I think that's sort of the the flag that we're raising up is to be prepared for that. Um, certainly with the Sam Sam group, and even with some of these other groups that have popped up since, um, I kind of consider it opportunistic targeted. You know, it's like a blend of the two. And they're looking for primarily open RDP, you know, people with remote desktop exposed to the internet, and then just guessing the, you know, 100 most common admin passwords and getting in because we're that bad at password security and it turns out organizations that have externally facing remote desktop also probably don't have incredibly strict security protocols. So they're not doing much more sophisticated than that. We did see some um, uh, attacks against uh, you know, some Red Hat e-commerce, some Oracle e-commerce as well that was unpatched web vulnerabilities. Uh, that was a, a minority of the total. Almost all, I mean, the, um, I don't have the exact numbers. I, I'll have to see if I could get them, but I, I'm confident it was more than 90% was RDP. So it was literally just doing like a Shodan search and going, where is there an open RDP? And then guessing passwords, and the ones you get in, that's the one you target. So once they get in, then it becomes more of a targeted attack because at that point, now you're human-operated, you're using those common admin tools to navigate the network. And back to the Wireshark comment earlier, um, you have things like Nmap, right? First thing you're going to do, what network am I on? What's here? You know, am it, the server I gained access to, am I in the DMZ or am I on the LAN or is it one big giant flat network where I can explore to my heart's content to any computer in the, you know, within the organization? Um, that's when it becomes more of a targeted attack and then identifying you know, our backups online, who are the administrators, you know, this kind of stuff so that they can set up their attack to have the most devastating effect. So from an exploit standpoint, we were seeing some uh, sort of web middleware uh, exploits being used in a small number of victims, but almost all of it was uh, more of an opportunistic targeting of external-facing uh, RDP. Um, now that the publicity has been out there about these more targeted attack groups, I would expect to see more uh, targeting of other unpatched things or things that are known to be difficult to patch, like Apache Struts and Apache Tomcat and uh, JBoss and the, you know, uh, these types of things because they're known externally facing ways to get into a network and they're known to be scary for people to patch and they often lag way further behind than, say, your average Windows patch or browser patch. So in terms of the patterns and the way these guys are moving and, and shifting and whatnot, I've asked this question to several different people, several different organizations over the last year or so, but are are these threat groups, and these threat actors, are they are they sharing information and techniques, or are they just sort of following things cl closely enough that they can sort of 
see from whatever news coverage, whatever chatter there is on a hacker forum uh, of what's working and what seems to be working, and then they sort of follow suit. Um, because it seems like there are sort of these larger shifts in the, the threat actor behavior, and a lot of people have suggested, well, it seems like they, they have a, a pretty good ecosystem and an economy of sorts where they are communicating and they're doing business with one another. But is that the case? Yeah, it's a mix of, of that, I guess. I mean, and it certainly, um, when we look at things like credit card theft, we saw a lot of specialization in that marketplace. We saw people who had um, money mules on the ground around the world that they knew that if they shared some of the cash with them, they would be willing to go to the ATMs and do cash outs, and they would advertise their services in dark market places to other credit card criminals who had just stolen a bunch of cards and needed a way to turn it into cash because they didn't want to you know, make the cards and go out and cash them themselves. Um, so we saw a lot of specialization and cooperation in those types of attacks for quite a long time. Uh, I don't know that that's true in this case. It feels more like the, the second half of your question, which was this um, observation of one another and chatter on forums about what's working and somebody just copy, you know, carbon copying somebody else. And to me, that's more of the model we saw with ransomware and fake antivirus and screen lockerware that we used to see before ransomware. You know, there were a few different criminal groups and they would all copy each other each time a new idea came up that was working. You know, so for a long time we saw fake antivirus, we saw it for Mac, we saw it for Windows. There were three or four, you know, major different, uh, you know, exploit uh, groups distributing that stuff, making money on it. And then somebody came up with the FBI screen locker thing, uh, you know, one group did. And then within a month they were all doing that and they'd all given up on fake antivirus. And then that went on for a year and then the first group switched over to doing ransomware. And within a month of the first ransomware making the news, you know, hitting the press as a thing, suddenly all the police locker stuff went away and everybody was writing ransomware. And so I think they're more observing and copycatting on the good idea part going, hey, wait a minute, that's a good idea. And when they hear about it, whether it's through a criminal forum or whether it's through an online you know, a publication, they're, they're taking that idea and going, oh, yeah, I see how that could work. You know, I'll, I'll take that idea and use it myself. And and, you know, sometimes, um, you know, there's some evidence we have to suggest that maybe some of the people involved in SamSam are not involved in BitTamer. Um, the evidence isn't convincing necessarily. You know, it's sort of a debate between our researchers as to whether the link is really there or not. Uh, but once it started getting out that by being sort of, by acting like a penetration tester, but instead of writing a report at the end installing malware, and you know, once that idea got out there, it's sort of like, hmm, well, that means one of you know one of us can be the pen tester guy, and one of us can be the guy that writes the ransom notes and the, you know the this and the you know the other guy can write the, you know the malware to infect the systems and sort of that division of labor again, like we saw with uh, credit card theft and other things. Uh, once the idea is out, it's like oh right, if if we act like pen testers, we can cause a lot more damage to a network than if we just sling malware and hope that somebody opens an attachment. And um, and that's to me what this reads like. You know, the Samsam group did it for a couple years, but nobody really knew they were doing it and it hadn't made the news. And we didn't see any other activity around it. And then once it started getting to be more well known in 2018, we started seeing copycats pop up. I, I guess looking at this from my perspective, as, as the report states, uh, there's a lot more obviously targeted cyber attacks and using living off the land to to succeed 
with these attacks. But on the other hand, this still isn't very, I mean, copycatting and scanning for RDP is not very sophisticated. We're not talking about elite skill here, right? No, no, that's the problem. <laughs> I mean, the, the game's getting upped, and it's not being up to the level of a, 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 a spy for a government which they've always done living off the land stuff, right? I mean, we've been seeing, you know, administrative tools being used to distribute things for, for you know, government agencies for a very long time. And even in a few malware attacks, if I'm not mistaken, I think in the target attack, it was alleged that the criminals use FCCM to deploy the malware to all the payment terminals. Um, so it's not an entirely new thing. And you're right, it's not incredibly sophisticated, but it's more sophisticated than a bot, which we can take apart and know exactly what it's going to do and exactly how it's going to attack us. And I think what we're seeing, how we're seeing the game being upped is we used to be so bad at patching our endpoints and we didn't have next-gen antivirus or anything more sophisticated than traditional AV, et cetera, et cetera, that there was still enough success rate of just slinging large volumes of stuff at endpoints that you were able to make pretty good cash doing that. As we've gotten better and better at patching, they're having to step up their game. And they're only stepping it up a little bit so far. But that's just that one particular attack group. So just because the Samsung group happened to be having success with RDP, that's probably a short-lived thing. If we get the word out enough that, gee, it's not a good idea to have internet-facing RDP, and it's especially not a good idea to have the password set to you know, let me in with a three and a one, um, which honestly has been some of the passwords, um, like that'll end as a way to get in, right? Like, we hopefully won't stay that vulnerable. We'll learn, just like we learned to patch, that it's a bad idea to do this. But now that the idea is out there that if I do break in, no matter how I do it, whether it's through that JBoss vulnerability, you know, something a little more sophisticated than RDP scanning, if I get in, if I take my time and I do things like disrupt the backups, disable the admin accounts, identify the valuable assets before I target my theft or my ransom, uh, that I can get a $50,000 payout instead of a $500 payout. I don't think that type of change will go away. It'll just continue to get more professional um, as we get better at locking our systems down. Last question for you. There's a part in the report that you wrote, we've lost a few battles, but we're winning the war, which is pretty optimistic. Sell me on this. Sell me on, on why we should be positive. <laughs> Yeah, it almost sounds like it'd be ghostwritten because I'm not typically known as a cheery, positive guy when it comes to these things. But uh, I see all this change as a really positive thing. We're weeding out the ability for total automation of basic things that are compromising our security. And, uh, and we're doing it on multiple fronts, right? The reason uh, drive-by web attacks have nearly vanished in the last 18 months is the browser makers have done an incredible job at locking down the web browsers and being more secure at the same time that we started patching and we started getting rid of unnecessary plugins, right? We all got rid of Java and Flash, and at the same time, Google and, and Mozilla hardened their browsers at the same time that we all put more effort into keeping our endpoints up to date. And that made the endpoint an unattractive target through the browser. So they switched to email. They started attacking our users, right? So then we started using more sophisticated things like sandboxing in our email solutions and next generation endpoint. And that's not being as effective anymore. So now the criminals are having to get hands on, right? And they're moving to more of these uh, attacks that are in the style of SamSam. They're always going to go to the spot where we're weak, but we're starting to narrow down the uh, easily exploitable and the most vulnerable parts of our networks to a point where they're having to actually use 
human skills now to have any success. And I think that's a huge win. And the same thing when we look at privacy uh, uh, insecurity, you know, TLS adoption is, you know, well over 90% in the United States, according to Let's Encrypt. Um, that's amazing, right? In, in, in just a few years, we went from having things like FireSheet be able to hijack anybody's Twitter or Facebook account with a browser plugin, and we went from that to 90% of all the internet traffic uh, to the web, at least, you know, being TLS protected. That, that's a that's a stunning achievement when you consider the millions of websites that had to be updated and the amount of work that went into modernizing our cryptographic protocols and our browsers in order to make it truly secure. Um, uh, so, you know, we're narrowing down the field and making it harder on the crooks, and uh, we're just starting to see the benefits of that. And uh, I'm, I'm quite positive that, you know, if we keep going down this road, we're going to be able to narrow it down where you're going to have to be a really talented criminal to do this. And that's going to lower the noise and increase the signal for us as defenders and give us a better chance at going mano a mano with them. Thanks to Sophos, the Sophos Labs team, and especially my guest, Chet Wisniewski, Principal Research Scientist at Sophos. I'm Rob Wright, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Risk and Repeat podcast. We will see you next time.